probably the moment is when I was six. Um, I, I was with my father at home. He took me, he took me on his knees with, with a A4, with a pencil, and he simply drew me a funny Nazi. He never talked about the Holocaust, but he drew a funny Nazi. A stark study in contrasts. The image of a Jewish death camp survivor sharing with his young son a seemingly paradoxical drawing of what was once a terrifying figure from his past. But that was the moment which inspired the boy to become one of Israel's leading graphic artists and cartoonists. I'm Omar Musni, and for this edition of The Lid Is On, we'll hear how that artist, through the very power of imagery, found catharsis in telling his family's intergenerational tale of suffering, loss, survival, and resilience. Born in Belgium and later settling in Israel as a young adult in 1974, Michel Kishka studied, and still teaches today, art at the Bezalel Academy, while producing comics in French and Hebrew for outlets such as Le Monde and the TV5 channel, in addition to contributing to the Cartooning for Peace initiative. He is even the subject of a documentary release this year called Kishka, Life is a Cartoon, directed by Delphine Yawovic. But it is the process of working on his graphic novel, Second Generation, The Things I Didn't Tell My Father, that he describes as absolutely one of the most overwhelming experiences of his creative life and his life as a human being. Combining humor with emotionally compelling imagery, Second Generation depicts Kishka's personal experience growing up as the son of a Holocaust survivor, whose painful war memories long go unspoken. The book seeks to convey how the trauma of a buried past affected his father and consequently impacted all his family relationships. Kishka came to UN headquarters in New York, where he spoke with high school and design students about both his family's story and his creative process. The event, sponsored by the UN Holocaust Outreach Program, took place on April 11th, a date that has personal significance to him, as he explained to Cristina Silvero. When I received the mail that invited me uh, to be their guest today, I immediately understood that this is the same date, 73 years after when my father was liberated from Buchenwald by the American army, by General Patton troops. So he was liberated from Buchenwald on April 11, 45. And uh, also, you know, Elie Wiesel was in the same camp and a lot of others. And they were the happy few who survived. And so uh, my father is alive. He lives in Brussels. He's about to be 82 in three days. I will fly to Brussels from here in two days to celebrate with him and the family. A lot of members, family members will come from Israel, others from Belgium, others from France to celebrate him. And uh, so being here today was a way to be connected with him in, in, in the timeline. And, and somehow it's an answer to why did he survive. He survived to tell his story to the world. And I'm his follower somehow. I can tell my story, not his. He did it. I can tell the story of those who grew up with Holocaust survivors. My yeah. sisters, my brother and me. That's right. Your, your, your message as part of this second generation is, is a lot about um, how the silence around the Holocaust and your father's story um, weighed and on your family and within your family. Yeah. 
it was a well-intentioned silence, but it had some dramatic and even deadly consequences. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us what it was like to grow up in a family where your dad is a survivor of the Holocaust? You know, I have asked a few times after I did my book to my father why he could not tell us. I received two answers. One answer was, you never asked, which is true, because I was afraid to ask. I was afraid to step in this minefield of suffering. What did you know about it? I knew he lost his parents and his two sisters. His father died more or less in his arms, close to the end of the war, close to the liberation after the death march. I knew he had suffered a lot, but I had no details. But you know, it's important to say that after the war, the whole world, the free world, was not interested to listen to the survivors. The world was busy in reconstructing a better world, a better Europe, to turn the page. That was the Second World War in, in 50 years, less than 50 years, with tens of millions of victims, almost all innocent victims. So the world was not interested. And, and I, I heard a lot of survivors who felt guilty to have survived. And I, I had a good friend of my father who was with him in the camps. He was from Paris and he was liberated in France. And, and when he went out of the train, uh, there were people waiting on the quay for, for, with photos of their family members. And they were watching those survivors walking. And somehow they made them feel guilty that they were alive because their own family members were not in the train. So that was a, an incredible situation. And it took time to the people to talk, to liberate. They speak. And you probably know uh, Primo Levi. And Primo Levi wrote his wonderful book on the year he was liberated in 45. Is this a man? I don't know the name in English. I read it in French. Si c'est un homme. Nobody read it. He became famous somewhere in the 80s. Somewhere in the 80s, the word was ready. The, the TV series Holocaust. It was in the late 70s, 78. So it was uh, 33 years after the war. And it, it wasn't covered in school either. You didn't cover it in school. Absolutely. I did not have a line about the Holocaust in my history books at school. It wasn't taught. It was kept silent because it was, you know, all over Europe, all the, all the countries that were occupied by the Nazi, you had collaborators, you had resistance, and you had... The average people who just wanted to survive. And this is a very, let's say, painful subject and still very delicate. There are people of my age who know what have their parents or grandparents done during the war and they are not proud of it. Or they are proud of it, it depends. So this is something, this is a page in history that needs to be written in a proper way yet because today... There still are Holocaust deniers. There still are, is anti-Semitism. And, and there's still much work to be done in education and information. And, and I did not think when I did my book that it could be a tool for this. But that's what happened with the book. Okay, I did not write it as an educator. I didn't want to give any lesson to anyone. I just wanted to tell my story. But it happened to be at the right time, at the moment that such a book was acceptable and was necessary. That's just a coincidence of history. 
Now, you're a cartoonist. You have humor. Yeah. Um, but you can have humor dealing with serious subjects. You're resilient. Uh, yeah. That wasn't the case for everybody in your family. And the experience of being in a family with a father who survived the Holocaust didn't impact yes. you and your siblings in the same way. Yes. You know, in, in the heart of the book, uh, I tell about my uh, younger brother's suicide, which is, to me, that was the starting point of the book that happened long time after. He suicided in 88, and I did my book in 2010-11. So, uh, um, yes, I, I needed that time to have perspective on what happened in our family, what happened in history, and what happened, how came that each of us, four kids, reacted differently? So that was to me a, a work of introspection, of going backward in time and to understand what sort of a kid was I, what sort of a kid was my little brother, what made us so different, why was he so weak that he felt so, so useless to the world and unhappy. I was a happy boy. I think I was simply unconscious. Hmm. But kids, your brother was very talented. As also. kids was yeah should be. And my brother was also very talented. I I had plans for him in life. I thought he would become a, a sculptor and a painter. But uh, he was not able to make the things, the necessary things, to 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 let's say to realize himself as as a human being. He was affected by a lack of love, by a post-trauma that affected him much stronger than me, myself. I was simply built stronger. I was more protected toward life. And he was fragile. He was a funny boy. He was like a clown in the family. You know, he was the last one. He was the little one. He was the smallest one. But he was really suffering. And... Uh, and his suicide was a sort of alarm clock to me. And it was a sort of, as you know, you, I woke up after a nightmare, into a nightmare, another nightmare. What happened to our family? And it took me years to, to develop uh, uh, the book that I, I finally uh, uh, created, which is about us, about his suicide, in the context of a post-trauma of the Holocaust family, European Jewish, and, and to try to, to, to answer to questions that I had without hurting my father. My, my mother passed away in 2001, so she was not able to have the book in her hands. I'm glad that I found the courage, because I needed courage. I needed to be pushed by my wife to decide that I will take the time to write things, to draw things, because that was a project of one and a half year. And it's important to say that this one and a half year was a happy one and a half year to me because I had the feeling that I do something very meaningful. It's a message that resonates. That's a message, absolutely, resilience. And that it's possible to tell a dramatic story also with humor. And, and if you make people laugh, they will listen to you more. Mm -hmm. And this is why I ended the book by something very funny, even extreme. Uh, and And... And this is uh, absolutely one of the most overwhelming uh, experience of my creative life and of my life as a human being. 
Your life, your message, your book have resonated with other people, the second generation and yes. beyond. Yes, yes. I had a, a lot of reactions because my book happened in the era of uh, uh, social nets. So through my blog or my Facebook page, people contacted me, people from different places in the world because my book was published in nine languages. So I, I had messages from people that I never met and never knew thanking me for having told their story. And, and that was absolutely the feeling that I had when I did the book, that it was a sort of a mission to tell a story of a whole generation called Second Generation. And my book was really my personal way to try to define to myself and to readers what did it mean. Why was it important to tell that story, to share your story um, through drawing? I mean, you're Belgium, you grew up in the land of chocolate and cartooning, but why tell this story through cartoons and drawing? I will tell you the truth. The process of a book, such a book, a graphic novel, first of all, you write it. You write a plan, you divide in chapters, and then you begin to develop each of the chapters. So when I was in the process of writing, which was the first time I, I wrote a book in my life, I wrote a lot of stories and comics for kids, but never such a big story. Um, I, I was tempted at some moments to say, oh, why shouldn't I publish a written book? Why drawing it? It's so much work. But I know I'm not a writer. I am able to write, but I'm at my best when I draw what I write. And I need to, to visualize all what I've written. Because, you know, Drawing is, a, is also a sort of writing. Visual language is a sort of storytelling. It's a storytelling. And I think I, I'm at my best. And I do my job when I... And it gave me huge satisfaction all along because that was a process of searching for references, uh, uh, observing and uh, analyzing family photos of the past, photos from the Holocaust, and, and to imagine scenes that never happened in real life to emphasize what I wanted to say, like my father crying in a camp and he's in a flood of his own tears, for example. So I, I let the things come on the paper, also in words and also in images. And that was a wonderful process. And at the end, it's just you, your fingers, and, and, and let's say the connection between your heart, your belly, your head and your hand. This is the magic square. And when all those are connected, you are a happy man. You can say funny, serious things. Absolutely. I think that humor is a vector of education and communication. And if you want to say serious things to people and you always patronize and you always put yourself as a master who wants to teach, at the end people don't want to listen to you. But when you find a way to catch them from an un unexpected angle, for example, with humor on such a dramatic topic, it, you know, you, you tease them somehow and, and you, they are questioning. They are, they are attracted and, and they remember and they, are, they open their, their ears and their eyes. They are ready to listen to you and to watch to what you are telling. This is why cartoons in the world, since cartoon exists, which is in the late 18th century, are so strong. You can be a walker in the street, 
you have a newspaper with a cartoon on a display of a, of a bookshop, you just pass your way, you see it, and you have it. Can you tell us the story? How did you decide to become a cartoonist? I did not decide to become a cartoonist. I, I grew up in Belgium. Uh, I, had, I was talented because my father was talented, and I, I got it in my DNA. And uh, I read comics before I read books. My father was a little anxious because I was not reading books, just comics. He was afraid that I would be, you know, stupid <laughs> because comics were not considered uh, high level. But uh, I knew when I was in primary school, I was six, our teacher asked each of us, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, an artist. I didn't know what it meant. I just knew it is sitting at a table, having a pencil and being happy. I did not know why that was there. It was not a decision that was... But was an, there a moment that an was... An acceptance mm. of my vocation. And, and probably the moment is when I was six, um, I, I was with my father at home. He took me, he took me on his knees with, with a A4, with a pencil, and he simply drew me a funny Nazi. He never talked about the Holocaust, but he drew a funny Nazi. So he, as a survivor, had, let's say, the reflex... It was not uh, the pro uh, a process of what to do. It, it came by itself. He had the reflex of laughing at it, of telling me something through this drawing. He did a funny, ugly Nazi with a boxer, a flower boxer, and, and a peapot on his head instead of a helmet. And I was laughing and laughing and laughing and asking for more and more details. And, and he made me happy. And I probably, at that moment, understood this is what I need in life. The words of Israeli cartoonist Michel Kishka, whose graphic novel, Second Generation, The Things I Didn't Tell My Father, is being adapted into the upcoming animated film, My Father's Secrets, by Vera Delmont. That's it for this edition of The Lid Is On. Don't forget, you can find more UN audio programs by visiting news.un.org and clicking Audio Hub. I'm Omar Musni. Thanks for listening. <laughs>